Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. All right, if you got a Bible, open with me to, uh, um, we're in Matthew 16 and 17 today. I'll explain as we move along. So uh, why won't anybody tell me what the lowest rank in the military is? I keep asking and everybody keeps telling me it's private. <laughs> the other day I brought home Robin a stupid gift and she said to me, if you bring home one more stupid gift, I'm going to burn it. I thought to myself, time for a candle. Would you stand to your feet in honor of God's word? We're going to start in, um, in Acts chapter 7. We're intentional starting there because um, this summer is about Paul's playbook. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he, as he moves through the New Testament writing about this entity called the church and how that applies to us. But we're going to start, I thought to myself, you know, the best thing I could do is start with how did Paul become this church planter and this person passionately in love with the church. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, while they were stoning him, not recreationally, by the way, these are real rocks. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Whoa, 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 what? While they were throwing rocks that were literally killing him, he prayed, God, forgive them, don't hold it against them. Wow, that's some kind of faith now, isn't it? Yeah, would to God the church of Jesus Christ would listen to our first martyr and we would understand that maybe we're not living a Christian faith if we're always trying to get back at people. Maybe it's time for us to start forgiving. So Paul, or actually Saul, Saul, his name was changed later to Paul, so this is him. And Saul was there giving approval, uh, approved of the killing of him. On that day, great persecution broke out against the, come on, what's the key word here? Great persecution broke out against what? The church. So that's Paul, used to be Saul. We'll talk about his name change next week. Saul was there giving approving to the killing of Stephen and great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy what? What was he doing? Destroying the church. Wow. Father, I pray that today you would open up our hearts to see your purpose and plans for the church and our hearts would be open to what you have to say. If there's anything in this room stopping us from hearing your voice, I pray in the name of Jesus it would cease right now. And I pray that any attitude that's built up a high wall against the hearing of the gospel and receiving the gospel, it'd be lowered right now. It'd be destroyed in the name of Jesus. We take that captive in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you are Lord here, regardless of what our thoughts are in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Turn to somebody and give them a big smile before you're seated. Come on, let them know you actually like them, you know? Here you go. If you're online, here's a big smile. I am so glad you're here. Did somebody smile at you? If you didn't get smiled at, turn and look at somebody and go. <laughs> All right. 
Y'all ready? So why are, we, why are we doing this? We're backing up. We're going to talk about Saul's salvation, how he became Paul, what happened with his life. Before we do that, though, we saw that Saul was the one that persecuted the church, and he was actually there responsible for the killing of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. And Paul, later he became Paul. We'll talk about that next week. Paul wrote some letters, and in these letters, I want to read you three quotes of his from different letters. In 1 Corinthians, he said, I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the what? The church. He's saying that he made attacks against the church, so he doesn't feel really worthy. Galatians 1.13, you have heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem. How intensely I what? Persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Philippians 3.6, as for zeal, persecuting the church. So these are three different places that he mentions this. If he mentions it once, it's a bias, you know, it's a, just a comment about what happened. If he mentions it twice, there's some intentionality to it. But if he mentions it over and over and over again, that means this is a part of his testimony and part of the understanding of his life. And, and what he's talking about is the church. Now, it's funny to me that this guy that tried to destroy the church became the preeminent church planner in the history of the church. This guy that tried to destroy the church did the most of anybody alive to build the church. So something happened that took him from that original hymn to the hymn he eventually became. And how did this change occur? Next week. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is the church because we don't know what Paul was trying to persecute unless we have an understanding of what the church is. And to understand what the church is, we're going to go back to Jesus the day he founded the church and he prophesied about its victory. So before we get there, let me just simply say, what is church? Unfortunately, we have an unfortunate translation of church. It comes from the old English word. When they were translating the Bible into the English, they used an old English word called kirche. Now, kirche is an old English word that means building or a place, a building where people worship or gather. It means, if you will, house of the Lord. The problem is this is not the Greek word used for church throughout the entire New Testament. The Greek word used for church throughout the New Testament is ekklesia. And that's a, a word, there are two words in ekklesia in the Greek. And the first one is ek, which means out of, and kaleo, to call. So to call out. And it's used, the word ekklesia is used throughout the entire New Testament. It is what we translate church, but it has a different purpose than our understanding of kirche. Kirche means a building. That's the reason in our thoughts, I'm going to go to church. And that would be a location you go to. But that's not the biblical understanding. The biblical understanding is those who are called out to do something. Now, ecclesia is used in, in uh, Greek literature outside the Bible. And when it's used, it's often used of a political gathering, gathering where people are called out of their homes into the marketplace. And there in the marketplace, they make decisions on behalf of the community and on behalf of their world to make changes to the world. Because an ecclesia is always people that are called out of normal into the middle of a crisis to fix the crisis. I think a lot of y'all just missed what I said. The ecclesia are those who are called out 
out of their normal into the problem to bring solutions to the problem. So God did not call us to be a building where we come together to gather. He called us to be people who are coming out of our normal into the chaos of this world to make an impact. The people said to me, you can't build a church with basketball gym in it. I mean, come on, it's got to be sacred to God. And that is the problem of our 21st century and 20th century understanding of church. We want to make a space holy, but a space is not holy. You are holy. The space isn't what's holy. You should see these kids running around in here playing basketball and volleyball and throwing balls at each other on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights. You should see them. And then they'll turn around and worship in the same space because it's not about the space. It's about the ecclesia. You are called out. I am called out. We are called out. So to understand really what ecclesia is at its core, we need to go back to the prophecies Jesus gave in the story where Jesus founded his church. And that goes back to uh, Matthew chapter 16. It starts with, uh, there are four movements in the story, and the first movement is that of confession. There are four movements in the story, and the first one is the confession. Now Jesus was taking a field trip with his disciples. Anybody ever go to school and like field trips? Mm-hmm. I hated class, but man, I love field trips. When we go somewhere and do something fun, right? So Jesus is, he's teaching along the seas of Galilee, and he decides that he's going to take his disciples on a field trip. Now, let me just throw up a map of the field trip so I think you can see what's going to happen here. He's um, actually, where he started was more over there in Capernaum on the left side. So he's at Capernaum, and he, and he says he's going to take a walk. So they take a 40 mile walk up the, co up the, the founding of the Jordan river, the beginning uh, waters, headwaters of the Jordan river, which is about a stream by then. It's probably about this wide. And they walk up to a place called Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea Philippi sets at the base of that big mountain there, Mount Hermon. Now this is the sea of Galilee and that's the way they walked up to that mountain. It was 40 mile field trip with sandals on. And you think the disciples were sissies. So the story happens here, this confession happens on a journey that's taken from Galilee, Sea of Galilee to Mount Hermon. And when they get there, when they get to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount Hermon, right at the base of that mountain, they come across this. There's a, a grotto in a rock wall, and this is, um, this is a, a, a rock face at the bottom of the, the foothill right there at the bottom of Mount Hermon. And there's a hole in the ground and there used to be fresh water that flowed out of it. And um, anybody that lived there would tell you what the name of this place is. The name of this place is the gate of hell. The gate of Hades, the gate of hell. So, um, yeah, they, they, here's what the, this is pagan territory. Um, really Jewish territory ended somewhere around that little lake above uh, the Sea of Galilee. That was about as far as most Jewish people ever went. Uh, up there was all pagans, almost all pagans. Maybe there was a, a few Jewish people up there, but for the most part, it was, it was all non-Jewish pagans. And they worshiped this God called Pan. Does anybody, anybody read the Percy Jackson series? Yeah, if you did, anybody know what Pan was? 
Pan is half goat, half man, right? And the ancient belief, well, let me just read it for you. To the pagan mind, the cave at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld where fertility gods lived during the winter. Caesarea Philippi's location was especially unique because it stood at the base of a cliff where spring water flowed. At one time, the water ran directly to the mouth, uh, out of the mouth of the cave set at the bottom of the cliff. Now, the pagans of Jesus' day commonly believed that their fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter and returned to earth each spring. So in the winter, they would go down, and in the spring, they would come back, and they'd bring life back with them. They saw water as a symbol of the underworld and, that, uh, and thought that their gods traveled to and from that world through these caves. So the cave and spring water at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld and they believed their city was literally at the gates of the underworld, if you will, the gates of hell. Now, in order to entice the return of their god Pan, each year the people of Caesarea Philippi engaged in prostitution and sexual interaction between humans and goats. Right there. That's pretty messed up, isn't it? That's bad of them. <laughs> Sorry, just couldn't skip. In the first century Israel, Caesarea Philippi would be the equivalent of Las Vegas or Sin City. It's much worse than the modern city of the American West and their open air Pan shrine next to the cave mouth, there was a large niche in which a statue of Pan, half goat, half human creature stood with a large erect phallus. Do I need to tell you what that is? I hope I don't with a large erect phallus worshiped for its fertility properties. Surrounding him in the wall were many smaller niches in which were statues of his intending nymphs. I hope I don't have to tell you what that is either. On the shrine in front of these niches, worshipers of Pan would congregate and partake in bizarre sexual rites, including copulation with goats, which was worship for their relationship to Pan. And you thought the 20th century and the 21st century was messed up. Well, it is. I was at Edgewater Park yesterday. Notice the clearly pagan ground here. This is messed up, isn't it? Sex with goats as worship. Sex with nymphs as worship. Sex with prostitutes pretending to be nymphs as worship. You ever notice how people get all goofed up when they start worshiping sex rather than God? Yeah. Just saying. If your identity is your sexuality, you're really messed up. God made you to be so much more than what you do with your genitals. So what's this confession we're talking about? Well, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, so where did this story happen? Come on, where did it happen? Right there, right there. He came to the, that place and he asked his disciples. He came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Now, Simon Peter, the big mouth of the bunch, he answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are 
our Savior, our Lord. That's what he was saying. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. So they're having a talk right there at the gates of hell with pagan idolatry all around them. And he said to Peter, verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter. Now this is interesting because uh, Peter in the Greek is Petros. Petros is a noun in the masculine form and the masculine form of the noun means little rock. Petros, little rock. You, Peter, are a little rock. But then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, hold on. On this rock, now the word used rock there is Petra. And in the Greek, that is feminine form. And in feminine form, it doesn't speak of a little rock. It speaks of a huge, massive, granite outgrowths or outcroppings or bedrock or things like that. If you will, can you go back to that picture? If you will, the rock. You are Peter, but I'm telling you, you are a rock. And on the rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're a little rock, but I've got a big rock even over the gates of hell. <laughs> and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying there's something bigger than us. And this big rock, the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I will tell you. I give you the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Wow. What just happened here is Jesus said this. He said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my called out ones. And Peter, you're a little rock. You're a little rock. You're a Petros. But I'm building a big rock, a big rock that's even over the gates of hell. And the gates of hell will never prevail over what I'm building because what I'm building is more powerful and firm and lasting and enduring than to even all the paganism with all their weirdnesses going on. This is what he's saying. Peter got it. First Peter chapter two, verse five, he said, you also like living stones, little, little rocks, you are being built into a spiritual house, big rocks. To be a holy priesthood, you and I, we are ecclesia, we are called out by God. He calls us by name to make us into little rocks that fit together into one big rock that is overcoming all the powers of hell and darkness and the culture going astray. That's who God made you to be. I want you to notice that when Jesus said he would build his ecclesia, he didn't say it at the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't say it at a synagogue. He didn't say it at a beautiful, fine sanctuary dedicated to him. He said it at the very gates of hell where paganism was at its worst. And Jesus doesn't want you and I to simply represent him within the four walls of enclosed comfort where everybody's rooting for you to worship Jesus. He wants you to be life and light and the called out ones in the middle of the craziness of this culture, in the middle of your workplace and your family and your school, wherever you live, you are the ecclesia. You are the little stones that God is building into the big stones. So then, what is this Petra then? 
We know Petros is us, the little rocks. What is Petra? Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's what it is. That's what, that's what Peter did. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh yeah, that's the rock. That's the rock. Anywhere you declare Jesus is Lord and you make him Lord, there he is Lord. And there you have power and we have victory. The ecclesia is never meant to be lived in comfort, but it's meant to be lived out in hostile territory. So at the ending of chapter 16, Jesus begins teaching kingdom values. You can follow it in your Bible later. He talks about suffering. He talks about sacrifice. He talks about eternal life with authority. I'll tell you a story of this, okay? When I was in, uh, going through college, I was called into ministry, and uh, I, nobody wanted me to minister, so I just went to work. I've never been wanted anywhere I've been, so it's cool. I just went to work in a factory. And uh, I did what I always do in a factory. I talked to people about Jesus. Here I am one day. I'm in a pit. Uh, it was a pit. It's probably about that deep. And um, there, where I worked, there were a couple of cooler guys around. And so there was always a crowd around my workspace there. And there were about 12 guys that day. This spot, the, there was a goofball here. But the, <laughs> the guy, I was here. And then there was one of the other guys here and another guy here. And they were sitting all around. There were about 12 guys. It must have been their break or something. And they were all sitting around our workplace. Now, the line's moving. And I'm putting six screws in a clip in every uh, refrigerator that goes past me. And, and Bill Fingerhut comes up. Now, Bill Fingerhut played offensive lineman uh, in college. So he's about six foot six and he went 200 and plenty, maybe 300. I don't know. He was a big boy and he was muscular and he was strong and he was big and he was huge. And he comes up that day and he walked up to me with all of these guys standing around. I'm trying to, you know, be kind and cool and witness to them in a way that doesn't make it too you know, out there. And, and Bill walks up and says, yo, crow. You one of them tongue talkers? He was intending to embarrass me. And I was. It worked. I was intimidated. Anybody ever been intimidated? So I grabbed my, luckily the, the boxes were moving and I, I was behind. So I screwed a box of screws and put my clip on and did my next one to catch up and and I was praying in the spirit the whole time, God, what do I do? And something hit me about the end of that second box and I turned around and looked him square in the navel. <laughs> and I said, yeah, what of it? He goes, oh, okay, just wondering. And he walks off. He intended to embarrass me, but you know, three days later, we were talking about how his life was a mess. And after work in the parking lot, we prayed and Bill Fingerhut received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Yeah, you can clap for that one. That's okay. And here's what I'm saying is, the, the power of the ecclesia is not to be lived in safe territory, but where we're made fun of, where we're attacked, where people think we're, we're haters or whatever it is. I don't care. That's where the power of God's love is at its greatest is when we're living in the middle of hostile territory. And if you think your Christian life is to get saved and come hide inside a building until Jesus comes to take us back, then you miss the calling of the ecclesia. You're actually called out of this place to go make a difference in the world. All right. Second thing I want to say is the confidence. I'm sorry. I skipped a whole point. Skip two. The, the con consultation. 
the consultation. Next stage of development of this story is, you know, they're walking up, they get there, he makes his pronouncement, and then he takes Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain for a consultation. After six days, Matthew 17, 1, he took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So these are the special guys. They go up. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. Notice who's there, Moses and Elijah. And they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, it's, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him, Peter. Shut up. Listen to him. <laughs> I love that. By the way, God told him he loved him and he was pleased with him. And here Jesus is on the mountain talking to Moses and Elijah and God the Father speaks out of the cloud. Now what's happening here? Can we, can we just talk about why the two people were there that were there? The first one was a guy named Moses. And Moses represents what? He is the giver of the law. And Elijah was the first in the long string of prophets. So Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. And if you talk to any Jewish person, they would reference that this much of your Bible right here, this much of that Bible that you cling to are the law and the prophets. Are y'all following me? The law and the prophets. So they represented all the things in the law and the prophets. And they're having a consultation. And the consultation is this. We want to make sure that everything that's written about you, Jesus, is going to be fulfilled in the next couple of days. And we want to make sure nothing gets missed. Because what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come down from the mountain. He's going to go straight to Jerusalem. He's going to die for the sins of humanity. And he's going to die to put an end to the rules of the law and the prophets. And I will use biblical words. Then it will be completed. It will be fulfilled and it will be obsolete. And those are all biblical words. We'll talk about that later this summer. And some of you are still trying to live a half Old Testament, half New Testament type of faith. Jesus did not call you to be halvesies. He called you to be all in on the new one. Because he fulfilled and completed and made obsolete the old one. And every person I've ever talked to that has a problem with God, the reason they have a problem with God is they built some weird view of God based upon this part of the Bible rather than upon the direct revelation of God through Jesus Christ from this part of the Bible. And God did not call you to go halvesies. He called you to go all in. All in on the revelation of the new covenant of Jesus, and I use biblical words. I will use them again, and you will hear them again. The law and the prophets are completed, fulfilled, and obsolete. Those are biblical words. I'll show you from Scripture later this summer. So the Old Test, uh, the the ecclesia, this new body that Jesus is forming is not half Old Testament, half new. They're all new, all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, makes a beeline to Jerusalem where he goes to the cross and dies, fulfilling the consultation. Then there's conflict. He comes down from the mountain and there's conflict. Coming down from the Mount of Transfer, uh, Transfiguration where this was the only time in Jesus' life on earth that his full glory of God is revealed. The only time. Here he is, comes down, and he meets back with the other disciples. 
Matthew 17, 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't do nothing. That's Kevin Crow version. They didn't do nothing. Well, they did do something. We find about that over in Mark. We find out what they actually did in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. So the disciples didn't have any power, but you know what they had? Arguments. Can I just say that's a problem I have with the local church now? That's a problem I have with the kingdom of God right now and the people of the church. We're really good at arguing about what we're right about rather than showing the power of God to people who need it. And I want to challenge you that as long as you're arguing to be right rather than serving in love, you will never experience the power of God. You were called to serve and to die for people like Stephen. Lord, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Like Jesus, Lord, forgive them. You were called to be that kind of person, not a person who proves you're right. Well, I'll just show them. And that attitude has made the unbelieving think the believing are unbelievable. So what happened? Jesus said, Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Man, I wish I had time, unbelieving and perverse generation. You know, we li unbelieving and perversity go hand in hand. Years ago, I was having trouble in my own personal life with my belief. I was struggling with my faith and Craig Rogers was here and he was talking to me and I, was, I can still tell you where it happened. We were at stoplight getting off 480 over at uh, Great Northern Road and we pulled up to the stoplight and I decided, hey, I need some help. So I was talking to Craig Rogers, one of my buddies, uh, a lot of you know him. He's been here, he'll come back here and he, he was sitting at that stoplight and, and he said, Kevin, an unbelieving and perverse generation has a hard time believing. And part of your problem with your unbelief is that you're perverse. So can I just call this out right now? As long as you are following your perversions, remember where this was spoken and the kind of immorality? As long as your sexual pleasures and identity define you, you will never find true faith and true power in Jesus Christ. At some point, you gotta take this part of your body and kill it too. And this part of your body that makes this part of your body all that it's worth. So I don't care if you got to get covenant eyes. I don't care if you got to throw away your devices and your phone. I don't care if you got to give your passwords to your spouse or your mom and dad. I don't care what you've got to do. You need to deal with the perversion that has invaded even the church of Jesus Christ so that we can stop being perverse and follow Jesus Christ with true belief because a lot of us have no power in our lives because we're spending all of our emotional energy trying to fulfill sexual perversions. Come on, guys, let's get free. Come on, ladies, let's get free. Come on, it's time for us to get free. Can we step away from this stuff and make Jesus first and that stuff second? He said, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long do I have to put up with you guys? When are you going to get it? Bring the boy to me. 
<laughs> the answer was to bring the boy to Jesus. So what happened is Jesus healed the boy. The boy was well. He shut up all the critics. He shut up everybody. He took care of everything in one minute because an act of power made a greater impact than all the arguments ever would. There are three observations I have from this part of the story regarding us as the ecclesia. Number one, we're so saturated in our cultural perversion that it has affected us. Number two, it's the children that suffer from our unbelief and perversion. And number three, Jesus called the church to live in the middle of an unbelieving and perverse generation with power. Let's move ahead. Number four, our confidence. And I'll wrap it up right here. Our confidence. Matthew chapter 17, verse 19. At the end of this statement, when Jesus cast the demon out of this boy, the boy was well. Here we go. Jesus says, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked him, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if I have faith as small as a mustard seed. Can we, can we go to that picture of the mustard seed? Get a picture of a mustard seed for you. It's in somebody's hand. No, it's not the big ring. It's not the little ring. See the little black dot in the middle of somebody's hand? That's a mustard seed. That's how much faith you need. That's how much faith you need. I don't have a great amount of faith. I don't care. Listen, I'm about 60, about 40% an agnostic and about 60% a believer. I'm allowed to say that because I have that much faith. And that much faith carries me through. Do you know why? Because my faith is in a resurrected Jesus who has shown his power over and over and over and over again. And if I have that much faith, I've got enough faith. You don't have, have all the faith in the world. You know what you need to do with faith? Let me tell you, what will never happen to that, that mustard seed? It will never grow. Do you know why it will never grow? Because it'll never be planted. So you don't need a whole lot of faith. You know what you need to do with your faith? Plant it. Now, can we go back to the verse? The verse says this. He said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, what mountain? Can we go to the picture again? What mountain are we talking about? We're talking about that mountain. Remember, this story happens at the base of the mountain. He turns and said, you can even say to that mountain, go throw yourself into the middle of the sea and it will obey. If you have faith as small, that mountain. Now that mountain's still there. There are mountains of perversion in our culture. There are mountains of destruction all around. So what do we do? We do like this lady. Her name is Catherine Hamlin. And in 1959, Dr. Hamlin responded to an advertisement to do medical work in Ethiopia. She was a, uh, a gynecologist, and she planned a three-year stint to serve the ladies in Ethiopia. You see, they have a problem with obstetric fistula, which is a malady that causes women to leak urine. They're becoming social outcasts. So they would live the rest of the life after childbirth leaking urine, and they would be outcasts. And there are medical treatments for this, but they weren't available. So this lady went to do three years there in 1959. In 1959, she went there just to be a doctor. <laughs> but 60,000 women have seen her in the last six decades. And she now 
is getting awards around the world, got awards around the world because 60,000 women are in a better shape because one woman went and planted her mustard seed. She went for three years, stayed for six decades. And I will read you her quote. Hamlin told curious questioners, she said this, I am just an ordinary believer in Jesus who was simply fulfilling the calling God gave me to do. She was called out to go care and to plant her mustard seed and a mountain in 60,000 women's lives have been changed. Oh, by the way, she pioneered new ways of serving and ministering. And notice she did it in the name and by the power of Jesus. Now, I wanted to stop there in this sermon and give an altar call and move on. But I'm going to be really just raw with you for a second. I'm going to tell you, I hate this last passage. I hate it. You know why? Because I don't see it happen enough. As a matter of fact, this past year has been one of the worst years of my life as a pastor, and I've wanted to quit so many times. I've thought about ways to quit. I've thought about ways to get out, leave and go, never come back, never be here again. I have thought about ways out because this was the roughest year of ministry I've ever had. I have, I've suffered bouts of depression like I haven't had in years. This time, it's not anything I'm doing wrong. It's actually everything I'm doing right. As a matter of fact, I was having one of those bouts of depression on Friday. Remember, this message is prepared on Thursday. It's finalized on Thursday and Friday I'm mowing my grass and I am so depressed that I really don't want to continue with the day. So I do what I always did and I turned on one of my sermons. <laughs> oh goodness. Isn't it amazing how God talks to you? He knows what I'm going to preach today about how we're called out to move mountains and have power in our lives. And I'm depressed and wanting to quit because the mountain right now is huge because I've been watching your lives be destroyed for the last 18 months. And every time I try to reach out to you, two thirds of you have closed the door on me and told me, two thirds of you closed the door on me and told me, no, 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 we can't. We're gonna die if we get COVID. You're dying anyway. I'm watching people, marriages, lives. I'm watching just dry up and die. Do you think that's hard on you? You should be the one that cares about you and loves you and prays for you. It's hard on you, but it's hard on me when I see it not only in your life, but in your life, 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 in your life. So I'm listening to the sermon. And the first one is, now remember, I want to quit. And the first sermon is, why don't you uh, quit complaining about what you don't have? And why don't you start praising God for what you do have? Oh, shut up. I hate it when you talk to me like that. Right? So God's like, why don't you quit complaining about what you're not able to do and why don't you begin thanking me for what you can do? And then the second sermon, because my yard, I do two sermons during mowing my yard. And the second sermon was this. I called you and I know you want to quit, but I called you and it's not your call to quit. It's my call. I called you to do a work and you don't have the right to back out of what I called you to do because I'm God and I told you that you are to take authority over this stuff rather than simply live in it. Oh, come on. 
No, God's not talking at all. Did you hear my sermon? Because God's not wanting to preach to me. He's wanting to preach to you. I don't think you got that. I am not the called out one. We are the called out ones. And God's here talking to you today that it's time for you to quit running from being the called out one and actually say to that mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, not because I'm so powerful, but because God Almighty is so powerful that he can do whatever he wants, whenever and however he wants, and he called you to do it. He called you. He called you by name before you were born, while you were still in your mama's belly. He mentioned your name and he said, I've got a call for you to do and I'm placing it on your life and I'm going to give you the authority and the power to do it. You are called by me to come out of this world, to live different than the perverse, unbelieving world and to step into my calling and to speak to the mountains of perversity and the mountains of oppression and the mountains of destruction and the mountains of sin and the mountains of a culture gone astray and say, Jesus is Lord. And if you want to do that today, you got a mountain, you're thinking about it. I want you just to stand to your feet around this place. If that's you and you got a mountain, you need to call out right now and you need to say, you belong in the bottom of the sea. Quit bugging me. Quit bringing down my kids. Quit bringing down my wife. Quit bringing down this culture. Quit bringing down the church of Jesus Christ. Mountain, I call you out in the name of Jesus. Go throw yourself in the sea, not because I have great faith, but because I plant my faith in the living God. I lift up my seed of faith, and I plant it now with uplifted hands and outstretched heart. And God, I ask you to move. I ask you to break through in the name of Jesus. Come on, begin to call out to him right now. Lift up those hands and call out to him as an act of faith. God, I call out to you. Lord, would you move in the name of Jesus? God, would you call down those mountains? Would you cast them in the sea? Those that are oppressed, those that are in bondage, those we love, that their lives are being stolen away by the, the lies of this world and the lies of culture. We call it out in the name of Jesus and we declare that you fall in the name of Jesus and that you get out of the way and that the kingdom of God and the love of God and the restoration and the hope and the joy of God would be placed in the hearts of those we love. God, that there would be a turning right now in the name of Jesus and that every power of darkness that comes to oppose would be vanquished in the name of Jesus that what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And God, we pray this, that our children, that the next generations to come would not live with demonic bondage, but they would live in the freedom and the power and the mercy and the love of God and that the hope of God would be free to a culture and that miracles would happen. God, that every one of those calling out for a miracle right now, that the name of Jesus, you would come right now and you would bring a miracle and release and hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. God, there is freedom. There's freedom. Do you believe that? If you believe it, just shout. Shout like you mean it. Shout an amen. Shout amen. Amen. I believe you, Lord. Hallelujah. Now, if you're in this room today, you're watching online, and Jesus is not your Lord, I want you to know that he called you before you were ever born. 
He called you by name. And you're not here by accident because he's calling you to be a living stone and the great stone of his victory. He's calling you. Today is your day. If you're online, I want you just to text believe to the number that's on the screen. If you're in this place today, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or stand up or say a prayer with me. I'm gonna ask you to do something really crazy. You ready? 520 tonight, we're giving a baptismal class right out here. I'm asking you to be here. I'm asking you to bring a change of clothes and to say, I'm gonna declare Jesus as my Lord tonight. I want you to be here at 520. No, no, no more hiding, no more halfway, no more, yes, I wanna get saved. It's gonna be in front of everybody. Jesus is my Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Go be the church. Go be the called out ones this week. Go do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.